0: I'm Matt Booker.
1: And I'm Dave Laird. And I'm DT Max, prepared to be ensconced in the lucite cubicle of the Great Concavity. Uh-oh.
2: Welcome, everybody, to episode eight of The Great Concavity. Today, we are joined by David Foster Wallace, biographer and New Yorker writer D.T. Maxx. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, happy Martin Luther King Day to everyone in America. We don't quite have that holiday in Canada, but uh, we should. Uh, Anyways, we are here to talk to D.T. Maxx today. Tell us a bit about uh, your background, Dan, and how you came to writing
1: this biography on David Foster Wallace. Uh, You know, I think that I would describe myself as kind of a generalist. I'd written an earlier book on prion diseases and the effect of prion diseases on insomnia called The Family Mm -hmm. That Couldn't Sleep. So from that point of view, it would hardly be a natural transition to write about David Foster Wallace. But over the years, I've written a lot of literary pieces for the New York Times Magazine and for The New Yorker. Uh, And so the actual origin of the book on Wallace was a, um, well, there was a piece that preceded it after David died. Um, You know, I've been a reader of his, but I've never pretended that I was, you know, the guy who had all the first editions. Um, Like Matt, maybe. Right, like Matt. I never, exactly, well put, I never pretended I was Matt. Not Matt. (laughs) In fact, the truth is I would go to Matt for just the things that I didn't have as I was working on the book, but we can get to that later. (laughs) Yeah. So what happened is... um, Actually, my editor, David Remnick, said, you know, did I want to write a piece on Wallace? And, you know, I knew some things about him, but very little. I mean, I'd read him, but, you know, he was a guy who stayed out of New York and I was in New York and he was a guy who wasn't really, you know, journalist, literary journalist made him anxious. And that's what I was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so I had never met him. I had been to the publication party for Infinite Jest, I remember. Mm. Uh, and I had sort of seen him. I tell this story in every love, love story as a ghost story. I had seen him across the room. Uh, and I just, I made the decision, which in, in retrospect was exactly the right decision, not to go up and say hello to him. I did learn later when I was working on the biography that he knew who I was, which I didn't know because I had written a, a piece, a very widely read piece on the way that Gordon Lish had kind of involuntarily rewritten or, or how better put how, Raymond Carver had been involuntarily rewritten by Gordon Lish, his editor. Mm. And David had clearly read that piece because he had taken a small quote from it and put it into one of his, uh, one of those commonplace books that are at the Ransom Center now. Mm. And he'd written next to it a uh, nice phrase, Dan Max." So, you know, he, he didn't write DT Max; he wrote Dan Max. he knew who I was. Yeah. Um, and I certainly knew who he was. But after he you know, died, I wrote this profile. Uh, well, not really a profile, but effectively a kind of posthumous exploration of what had happened. Um, And I think anyone who's taking the trouble to listen to this uh, podcast would understand that once you've started on something like that, you can hardly just say, well, I've had enough. You know, that was kind of interesting. I think I'll go back to doing other things No, I mean, I I wanted to, had to, felt a burning need to go forward and do something longer Hmm. uh, and more interesting. And so in that sense, you know, one of the pleasures for me about every love story was effectively catching up with people like Matt or trying to catch up with people like Matt who already knew all the things that I was learning. Right. Um, And that in a way, you know, I mean, there was nobody like David Foster Wallace. It wasn't, it wasn't as if I was beginning a career as a literary biographer. Um, You know, I have a friend who I think she did a biography of Austin and then she thought, well, I'll do Bronte. And then after Bronte, she thought, well, you know, you know, Ivy Compton Burnett really needs one. And then, you know, well, Virginia Woolf should have, like, I'm not that person. I'm not going to sort of be, you know, knocking off the various, uh, Prominent late twentieth, early twenty first century fiction writers. This was a real special experience for me, yeah. a, a real one off. So there's no follow up uh, Don DeLillo or Thomas Pynchon right. biography coming yeah, that, up. That's that's exactly that is exactly precisely what there isn't. Right.
0: <laughs> so Dan, my my memory of the timeline is that New Yorker piece came out in May of two thousand nine, and it was really the first time that any of us, even as fans, had heard that. Wallace was working on a novel called *The Pale King*, and it was really phenomenal piece to break that news that there was going to be a posthumous novel, and Michael Peach was assembling it. So my impression of it was that Remnick gave you that piece because it was about an editor kind of assembling a a novel the way that Lish worked on Carver, but maybe that was just coincidental.
1: I I think that's coincidental. I mean, I I don't certainly, we never discussed the fact that there was a, that there was a novel that would be edited in the, you know, days after David's death. Uh, I don't think that I knew that there was a half. I mean, look for honestly with most writers, it's a reasonable guess that at the time of death, there's a half written manuscript you know, it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's more it, it's more likely to be true than not. Um, but it wasn't prominent in our conversations, although his battle to uh, that he had gone off his medication to because he was upset in part, um, primarily, really, I think, with his inability to write well or feel that he couldn't write well, hmm. was a part of the conversation from very early. I mean, very early in my interviewing, that became clearly uh, a part of what. Of what I knew or what I what I learned, um, I, I think they gave it to me because you know, I mean the the New Yorker has, I mean the, there were a number of people could have done the piece at the New Yorker. Obviously, um, it may have just been you know that I I needed a piece that could be one explanation. I mean why you know why wasn't it given? I mean, I mean a lot of people could have done the piece. A lot of fans. I mean Wallace had a lot of big fans at, at the New Yorker. But anyway, that's hmm. that's what happened, and and um, I was excited to get the email because. You know, I'd always been a big fan. I I think Matt probably chided me about this the first time we, we met, but I was I've been a huge fan of the Boom of the System. Oh, which, yeah. Pick you picked know, the
0: wrong book, Dan. You picked the wrong
2: book.
1: Yeah, exactly. Matt's pretty good at chiding people. But you know what? I gotta say, all these oh, by the way, just because the podcast should be uh, coruscatingly accurate, the piece came out in, in March, the first New York of it. Yeah. Oh, March
0: of oh9 Okay.
1: Yeah. But um I remain a fan of the book. I mean, even though I can see how and integrate it into Wallace's life and see why Wallace fell out of love with it. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean I have to fall out of love with it. You know, there's there's a there's a magic to that book. You know, look, David was full of of self hatred, right? And it's a big theme of my biography and 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 self anger, mm. and that he chose to turn some of that onto his early work. You know, with all the changes that went on in his life, it's understandable. But I don't think as a reader you have to follow that.
2: Yeah, I think some of the some of my favorite Wallace prose comes from room of the system like for, like the yes. like the restaurant scene with rick vigorous and lenore and yes. uh, norman bombardini i think that is one yes. of the funniest things i've ever read
1: in my whole life with the right steps. absolutely no no absolutely and, and there's a beautiful description i don't want to take our precious 40 minutes up on the wrong book but me <laughs> for a moment here matt there's a wonderful description of rick vigorous going back to amherst uh, and walking around, you know, seeing the scenes of past catastrophes, you know, it's just a, I can I cannot go to my college campus without thinking of Rick Vigorous back at back <laughs> at Amherst.
0: Uh, I I do think it's probably the funniest thing he ever did, and I think yeah. there's nothing wrong with writing comedy to try to make people laugh. But I think for him, that felt like showing off. Yeah, totally. And. And and it also felt really derivative, like that Bombardini thing is a Monty Python skit that he.
2: So, yeah, totally. Bring me a bucket.
0: All right, <laughs> and then there's the John Irving right, parody right. thing, which I really, I really like that part. I think that's some of the best stuff he's he's mm-hmm. got in that novel. Um, and I really like the Gilligan's Island totally. bar. I think that's
1: hilarious. I mean, there's
0: a lot of good gags in there.
1: But yeah. it's more than I think. It's more. I'm not going to live and die on this on yeah. this hill. But 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 I mean. There's something that book has not have been despite heavy Pinchonian overturns, I don't think that book could have been written by anyone else. God knows, certainly not at that at that age. But in their undergrad, yeah. I yeah. Think. I mean it's just to me it's like, you know, it has this sort of grace I'm a big fan of first novels in general. Um there's a way in which it's like a puppy with huge paws who hasn't yet grown into his paws yet, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I think about it a lot, too, because every time I read a novel that's written by a young man from a female perspective, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, to me, I think that's a really interesting phenomenon. And I uh, I don't know, I could say a lot about that. So I think the, the fact that Wallace chose a female protagonist for his first novel and really his first, you know, extended fictional piece, I think that's, you know, that's more interesting than a lot of first novels.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, I, he never really tries, um, I guess I would say, without, I mean, he never really, I mean, look, his goals as a fiction writer just change, right? But, I mean, that is the most fully developed, although comically developed, f- fictional character that he's got, I think. I don't know, you can argue for the depressed person. I feel Matt's spinning through his perfect knowledge. <laughs> of, <laughs> what, what are you going to throw up in, 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 in contradiction to that?
0: Oh, you know, what makes me think of those earlier, he's got a couple of stories that are still unpublished in the Ransom Center, the Juvenilia stuff. And it's more in line with that yeah, stuff, course. you know, the Clangbirds the and the Ralph and the Legal Milestone. Yeah, totally. Those kind of stories that are kind of comic jokes and like the um, Enema the Bandit. I mean, that's funny stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that what's interesting to me is a lot of that did survive into Infinite Jest. And there's a lot of... People who picked up Infinite Jest thinking it's going to be a rollicking comedy because right. of the title.
1: Right. <laughs> he says. Sorry. He remember. He says that he's upset that people thought of it as a funny book. Remember that interview
0: where yeah, he says he thought he wanted to do a sad
1: book. Right. Right. Right.
0: And uh, yeah. even David Markson. I remember Markson's one comment about it was that he read the whole book and just laughed his ass off. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's really not my experience. Yeah, yeah, but okay.
2: Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I think for me, it was a bit of both, right? Like there are sections that are like wildly hilarious, and then there's some that are just are are ghastly. Right. And so it it walks that line all throughout. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think as if as we learn more, if we ever do learn more about the sort of textual history of the, um, of the book, you know, I mean, obviously, there's sort of two books in there that are. Living side by side, and I think making each each other more interesting by, by being in that kind of opposition. But I mean, it seems to me that um, some of that stuff probably dates back all the way to Syracuse um, and yeah. before. Remember, there's that there's a there's a letter that David qu- that I quoted in the biography where he talks about how he he writes to Mary Carr and he says like there are these boxes of stuff that he tried before and it didn't really cohere back then, and now it's cohering. And I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's that's the stuff with Hal or not. I mean, but I, I would be really surprised if that isn't some of that stuff dating all the way back to that time.
0: Well, uh, I think the non AA stuff, some of that goes way back.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the, yeah. some of it goes back to Arizona. Yeah. A few pages definitely right. go back to Arizona, but but the
0: you know it seems like he did the. Uh, the Tennis Academy stuff almost separate from the AA stuff and started to fuse them together when he was in Syracuse. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think like that's have, in your book.
1: right? Yeah. I mean, I it's still my best guess is that, is that, you know, and as a writer, he probably drafted out the tennis stuff in whole or in part. Then he began with the AA stuff. Then he probably went back and rewrote the tennis stuff. So it would live, you know, with the AA stuff in a, in a creative way. He probably then redrafted some of the, you know what I mean? Like he, Right. I, I don't think I don't think it was modular, but but I do. I mean, it, look, writers can always surprise you with their processes, but it's really hard to imagine. Well, you know, David couldn't be begin the A stuff till he had the experience. Although, I mean, he was right. he was actually in AA. As I, you know, what many things I learned for the book I didn't know for the magazine article just by definition, right? And you know, one thing I learned was that he, well, he's really quite extraordinary. But all the things that happened at the end of his life, where he goes off of the nardle and all that he had a, he'd had an absolute dry run of that in what year is it 88 I think and I don't, I don't have my notes with me I think it's 88 when he's at Arizona yeah. and he finishes the MFA program and he's just kind of you know at, at loose That's 87 that
0: 87 he graduates in the summer of 87 with the MFA and then went to Amherst in the fall. And that was really bleak when he went back right. to Amherst. But then he goes,
1: if I if I remember right then he goes, he goes back, back to Arizona. Right. And yeah. that's when he joins AA. But I hadn't known that beforehand. I hadn't known that for the magazine article. It was pretty obscure actually. I mean, mm. uh, but anyway, I just, we're digressing as I suppose the nature of the yeah. thing, but, but um, you know, he, I think that some of that comic writing may date from that period um, at the very least from, yeah, I really think that's got to be the period. I mean, the other possibility is, is early in the Boston time when he's living with, with Mark, Costello. Mark Costello. But I but I know what he was working on then. At least I believe I know from Mark and from the letters. And that's the porn novel that eventually, right. with a lot of changes, becomes early drafts of The Pale King. Hmm.
0: And he also wrote Order and Flux in Northampton there, which he was not really proud of mm-hmm. and and didn't ever... Put into a book, right? And and it was also it had a lot of comic stuff in it. I agree. And and you know, with Infinite Jest, he created this world, right, where it's not just ETA, it's not just AA, it's not just the uh, Quebecois terrorists. He's got like the Year of the Dependent Adult Undergarment mm-hmm. and all of this political yeah. stuff that's also funny. So I think that that's where right. he he was really able to spread his wings and and weave together all those pieces that'd be funny. But um, let's go back a little bit to the timeline because when you mentioned 2009, it makes me think that's around the time. So 2009, that summer, was it that summer you got the book deal and then immediately started working on the book?
1: i um, trying to think. It was pretty soon after, you know, I spent, a, I mean, the, the piece came out, you know, it was the second of two, I mean, David Lipsky's piece had already come out, Rolling Stone. But that piece didn't have any of the discussion of the work to come. Uh, I mean, I don't think he knew about it. And then, you know, I can't remember, but I think by the fall, I was probably pretty much devoting myself full-time to working on Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. Uh, Because I can't remember anything else coming in between. You know, I can't remember any magazine pieces. I didn't do another New Yorker piece after that. There was one that ran a week later. But actually, I'd been working on it before. So, I mean, it wasn't... Yeah, it's very it was very rare for someone to have pieces on sequential weeks in the New Yorker. It sort of was a joke in the office. Like, well, what do you got for next week? <laughs> but it was, just pure, it was just pure chance. I mean, just pure, pure accident. So is it about a two-year process, writing the biography down? I think it's longer, right? Because Two it comes years, out yeah. in, Closer to three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, because it comes out in September of 2012. So if I started in earnest in September of 2009, and I was writing... Fairly close up to the deadline. I was one of those authors who was sort of yeah, ir- okay. irritating his copy editor by rewriting and rewriting.
0: So that fall of 2009, I remember, was a conference in New York at the City University of New York called Footnotes. And there were a lot of Wallace scholars who came to that conference. And there, that was really the first time i had heard the rumor that uh, Wallace's papers would be sold to the Ransom Center. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it was lucky for me that I was already living in Austin at the time. Extremely lucky. And, and I knew that you would have to come now. You would be forced to come to Austin right. at least a, a few times to, to come and hang out. So I think that was really fortuitous. You know, I don't know if you and I would have met as much if. I had not been living in Austin. Well, maybe not as much, or, but I mean, a
1: number of people said, "You got it. You got to meet Matt You, you got to meet him." <laughs> oh, that was great. And, that, and I mean, including uh, David Lipsky among them. Um, yeah. Uh, where you know, and, and you know, I think we've talked about this. I mean, I didn't have that much experience with things like you know, listservs or or um, gr- groups like that. I mean, I, you know, yeah. it was I didn't really know what our connection would be. And, you know, historically, you know, I go back a, a far enough that there were, you know, there, there wasn't such a group, you know, or, or it was completely informal. And so it was an incredible asset for me to meet you and also to have the sort of communal minds that the Howling Phantod's website represents, you know. Hmm. I mean, it was from a research point of view. My God, you know, Nick had put everything yeah. up there. And that was incredible. But even from a thinking point of view. And I think we didn't, I think there were a couple of times maybe with, when with your help, I would ask, you know, if anyone knew about something or other. we try to find somebody who, you know, who knew David at some point in his life. I remember, you know, using the web in a way I hadn't. Certainly, you know, the first book I did, the one on insomnia, that's 2006. And although, I mean, there was a there was a web then, and I used it. Um, it didn't have the same, you know, I mean, also, of course, Wallace is special. So, I mean, a funny way Wallace, sorry, Wallace corresponds a little bit, you know. So thinking back, you know, when I did, uh, uh, the Family That Couldn't Sleep, the first book, you know, there was a very involved and engaged group of, of Americans on a listserv who thought that uh, bad cow disease, which is a weirdly enough a, a disease related to fatal familial insomnia, was coming to America. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, this is the time when there were those headlines, and Dave, you'll excuse yeah. me, but we very much suspected Canadian beef, and every time, and
0: seriously, <laughs> yeah, all, all
1: American that. cows just went into a hole, but whenever... the Canadian slaughtered account found what was called bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Uh, it would be front page New York Times news. So there was that, but it's different. Like it was that wasn't a that wasn't a group of enthusiasts and scholars right. and 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 self you know and sort of self educated. It was just people who were worried. about I mean, those people were self educated, but more in the sort of classic. Uh, vein of you know, don't trust authority. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Like, don't yeah, believe yeah. what the USDA tells us. Yeah. Whereas you like, know the Wallace community. Of- I mean, I I don't know that there's another one. Maybe maybe the DeLilovians. I don't think so. The P- 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 <laughs> I P- don't think so. I know you you get your space from the Pinchonians, but I mean, that strike me as, as different and and um, amazing. I mean, simply uh, simply amazing. It was like having companions. You, usually, you write a book and it's lonely. I mean, I'm not complaining, but I am, <laughs> but I am complaining. Like it's lonely. And it wasn't lonely, you know, wasn't there was a there was a lot of people who were helping and, you know, and a lot of thinking going on at the same time. It's fun.
0: Well, and there's what amazes me is there's still a a lot of things that are hard to research in the age of Google. Like you might say, oh, there's kind of this quote that he kind of mentions this other thing. Does anyone else recall this interview? Where was that? Because I've searched and I'm not finding it. Little things like that are actually doable if you know the more minds you have working in the hive
1: yeah Yeah, i mean what what yeah what i agree totally one area i wish i'd done more on but it's not as linear was you know he gave a lot of radio interviews um Hmm. and i didn't really use them because they weren't you know they just print interviews were searchable you know radio interviews weren't and i just you know also i mean I, i suppose i thought with the exception of um who's the um L.A. guy, sorry.
0: Um, uh, Michael Silverblatt. Yeah,
1: except for Silverblatt, who's, I mean, just just stunning. You know, radio often will cover pretty similar ground just because of the format. The, you know, you go to, you go to Minnesota, you, you give your talk, you're you on you know, your Kansas Public Radio, you give your talk. So, but I mean, Silverblatt, that thing, with that his, his work was so off the charts. You know, I mean, it was as good thinking as I ever saw on Wallace. And it was done, I guess, you know, extempore on, on a radio show.
0: No, uh, he, he's in a different league for sure when it comes
1: to literary interviews. And, I wow. mean, even
0: Wallace was impressed with him.
1: Yeah, yeah, wow. I mean, all I can say was, right. wow.
0: And he did a Terry Gross interview, which was only archived in part. Oh, really? I think now I think now the whole thing is available. But it's, you know, Wallace was pretty, he had a lot of canned answers, totally. like a lot of writers. <laughs> and he would go back yeah. to
1: them. He does his letters too. I mean, one one reason that I, felt I was sort of ready to turn in the manuscript was, you know, I discovered new cache of David's letters and I'd read them and they'd sound a lot like other letters I had from David, you know? Yeah. I mean, his stance, his presence, his persona were very consistent after a while from, from letter from letter to letter. I'm not saying I couldn't still be surprised. I could, but you know what I mean? It was like, I'd see his letters to a guy in Germany who was interested in um, Buddhism uh, and right. then, you know, I'd see his letters to a young, to a woman in, in America who's interested in Buddhism and they'd be very similar, you know, they would be the stance. I mean, I, you know, I, I've often said that this book, you know, lives, uh, in some ways through, through David's letter writing. Um, and it, it would have been a very different book if I didn't have the letters, but, but I think it's also, I've never, I've always said, you know, I don't, I don't have a really high opinion of interviews as maybe because I because I do them. But I, I don't give. i don't give as high an opinion of interviews as a place of disclosure. Right. And although I don't deny that letters are another form of self-presentation, um, mm-hmm. to me it's the best form of self-presentation. maybe for the obvious reason that you're using words to mold or language in a way that you don't really use it on the radio. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it's true. Like even if I mean we don't have a lot of sort of personal writings from David that were not meant for publication. But the ones that we do have aren't really very different from some of the letters, hmm. especially the early letters, the ones to Corey Washington. Yeah. Quite remarkable.
0: There's an interview that Wallace did, a, a radio interview that I just posted the other day on Twitter, and now I'm not, I'm not finding it. But it was remarkable in that it had a really good uh, moderator, a really good interviewer. And I'll have to go back and post the link after this, um, because... Uh, that, to me, makes the difference in a lot of those interviews. Like, Michael Silverblatt is such a good interviewer. Right. And the, the one time I saw Michael Peach interview another writer on stage, I was taken back about how good uh, of an interviewer he mm-hmm. is and how natural and well-versed he was in every sort of aspect and able right. to put writers at ease and stuff.
1: Well, he really knows um, their work, too.
0: Really, really knows the work. Yeah. And I think that there's still... Um, some value in people, I don't know, pursuing that. And I think scholars will go back and look at some of those right. uh, radio interviews that he did. There was a couple of interviews that I was surprised like were not in the um, book of interviews Stephen Byrne
1: edited. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you happen to know what his first, you know, what, what's his first radio interview? Does anyone know?
0: That's a good question. I know his first like print interview was at Wall Street Journal
1: thing, 1987. Is that before the arrivals piece? The The Arrival magazine. Well, yeah, isn't that the one with uh, Bonnie Nadell's friend that when he's still an undergraduate, when he's still when he's a graduate at uh, when he's at Arizona, he does an interview for the forthcoming Broom of the System.
0: Right. And this is around that time because right. this is um this is the first review of Broom of the System. Yeah,
1: I suspect it's slightly So maybe later. arrivals before. Yeah. That. Well, at least that he probably did the reporting on it before. But I'm going to be curious because you know it wasn't the thing I thought about when I worked on the book, but I, I'm a big believer that to do a biography or any form of reporting, really. And biography does have a lot of reporting in it. Uh, yeah. Look early in a person's life or career. And so with Wallace, you know, I mean, that, the arrival piece isn't very self-disclosive, but there might have been early radio interviews where he talked a little bit differently about his work. I'm curious if you ever did one for Broom. I, I can't think of any radio interview he did for Broom of the System, but I might not know, again, because I, that wasn't, wasn't an easy place to search. Do you know, Matt?
0: Well, WBUR in Boston pulled up a review. I mean, a lot of that stuff was not saved, you know, from the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, wow. But uh, WBUR did one around the time when he was living in Arlington with Costello. And they saved it and dug it back up a couple of years ago. So uh, that might be uh, so the he's, oldest. F- he's
1: living in Somerville. was in Somerville with Somerville, Costello. okay. So they interviewed him. For the appearance of um, girl with curious hair, then probably I
0: think that's right. Well, we'll have to. Uh, yeah, if you actually, have a link
1: to that, I'd love to listen to it. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. We'll post the link up. there. Yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, I knew that I forgot it.
0: it actually, I, I'm looking at it now. Open source radio, open source. It was, it was actually 1996. So that's not as. Oh, that's old. the
1: Chris Leiden one, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that's Chris Yeah, that's different. Yeah, yeah I didn't but know. Still, that they in, thought they would have lost it. But. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I didn't think that he had done a, but you know, I, I never really thought you know it was a small piece of the puzzle, but it would have been interesting to hear his voice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. One yeah. of the most wonderful things I had, which was a complete accident, was speaking of David's voice, is this you know I use it uh, in every love story, but he had um, I, I never heard of something similar. But he and his friends, after graduating from college, sent each other taped, um, com- taped sort of reminiscences or or taped like taped letters saying what was going on in their lives. Hmm. And so you have Corey Washington and you have Dave, you have Mark Costello speaking to each other as if they were on some sort of party line phone call. It's just that even in um, 1985, it seems to be a kind of odd sort of retro, somewhere between retro and just sort of dorky, but it's kind of wonderful, you know, to make cassette (laughs) tapes to send to each other. Yeah. You know, and and David's is precious, just... Just wonderful. Hmm.
0: (laughs) So you mentioned earlier, we were talking about the the value of the Internet inside of the hive mind. And you you talk about that a little bit in a preface that you added to the paperback edition of Every Love Story. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, you know, I was looking forward to reading that a lot because I was wondering if you were going to do something different for the paperback and, you know, now that's been out for a few a couple of years. Yeah. And have you talked to the publisher or done anything about if you thought about doing like a, a new edition of the book at some point? You know, they're doing a new edition of Infinite Justice. Yeah, I mean, I, mean,
1: I, I think I think that's inevitable and, and I, that I should do it. I, I think what I'm waiting mm-hmm. for is maybe a little bit more new information um, mm-hmm. to come out. I mean, I'm I'm, you know, I'm reading what people are doing at least. Asking Matt <laughs> what 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 the new scholarship is, and most of all, you know, for me, what's most important is really the new textual scholarship stuff, mm-hmm. like like David Herring's forthcoming book. Right. Um, those are the things that my eye naturally goes to most, just both because of my disposition and because it's a biography. Um, and you know, I've done uh, kind of willy nilly some re- some interviews with people. You know, when I, I've given a lot of talks about the book and, and various people have come out of the woodwork I mean they didn't experience themselves in the woodwork but I did uh, who I couldn't find for the for the biography um, and so but I mean I, I, I think that that's you know um, I think that's that's down the road and and a little bit weights new uh, I mean what, what's so complicated and interesting about David is that he dies so young right? Uh, And usually when people die after a ripe old age, you know, the the people who knew them follow soon after and deposit their papers, right? But that's not the case with with David, obviously, since he died young. And so um, there may well be a fairly long kind of, you know. uh,
0: Incubation period. Yeah,
1: or locuno or whatever, Latin seizure or whatever. There's going to be a pause there, I think. Um, well, the scholars are busier than the, than people like me, or, you know, uh, you know, I just think that's probably what's going to happen because my sense is that the Wallace scholarship community is quite active right now. Um, but they can't, you know, be basing that off of really, of new biographical information. I don't think there is very much new biographical information come out, which is where I would step in. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we'll see. Unless
0: um, Stephen Byrne unearths, you know, a cache of letters (laughs) and publishes a new book of letters, like that would probably get your attention, I'm sure. But didn't
1: he say at the uh, Wallace conference that he'd not gotten permission for that? He
0: said it's on hold. Yeah. Um, So I I don't know what the the status of that project is. And I don't know that we will know for sure until it's public, you Mm -hmm. know, unless someone. Uh, gets that insider info from Stephen Bird about you know if it has a publication date and mm-hmm. all this stuff, but
1: yeah. but my understanding and I wasn't at that conference. at the first one was that was that he did not think the letters were were revelatory, and the um that was what I understood him to to mm-hmm. have said. You were there, right, Matt?
0: Right, I was there, and I took notes on that lecture. And he did have some slides and stuff where he was showing, right? You know, Wallace's handwriting and stuff, but it was it was pretty. Um, Was pretty small focused on that he did talk about the way that you'd structure it where wallace starts out sort of as an apprentice writing Mm -hmm. to um you know writers that he admired and then he kind of moves on to writing to colleagues who are around the same age as him like franzen Mm -hmm. and then he moves on to uh, later in life writing up to younger writers
1: no that's that's a nice structure uh, and it'd actually be very interesting i think for other especially beginning writers to read it's it's a good idea i was just thinking that you know you can almost encapsulate that in in his letters to delillo which um now i actually knew about the letters to delillo and quote them in a piece um that i wrote about the ransom center of all things right into 2007 yeah uh yeah around, around then and um where uh, some, those letters already had such, so it was Delillo who, who sold his letters at the random center. And so they, so one of the weirdnesses, uh, about correspondence is that, you know, you don't sell your letters, you sell your letters. So right, you don't sell right. the letters you write, you sell the letters you get. It's really creepy in that way, right? I mean, it's a really <laughs> strange fact. I mean, David, as far as I know, almost didn't save any letters, but that doesn't matter because people saved his letters. So, um, uh, and I remember they had such a reputation that when I was asking at the Ransom Center back then, like, what letters should I quote for this piece? What are the great letters in the collection? There were some, I think some Evelyn Wall letters, if I remember right. Uh, and then, you know, you know how it is that Wall is then as now. I mean, even more than, there you know, was a kind of almost a little underground of people who were passionate about his writing. Right. And um, so one of the young assistants, of course, the guy who I felt was like sort of most in tune with writing was like, you've got to see these letters that Wallace wrote to DeLillo. But anyway, they begin with, you know, Dear Mr. DeLillo. That's the first letter. Right. Uh, and then at some point, he becomes Dear Don. And then eventually, he's D squared. You know, Dear D squared. <laughs> and that's like, you know, that's that's uh, Cheeky Wallace. So so in a yeah, sense, yeah. I mean, not to overinterpret, it, he goes from being the apprentice to the peer. Right. Not to being to the, the superior. Friend, yeah, but almost to being, you know, yeah, to being the friend, exactly. Or mm. Someone who's really... Really confident.
2: Comfortable. Yeah,
1: almost almost in, a little bit insolent in that uh, mm. in that, in that exchange. I, mean, cause yeah. I think Delillo writes them as Dear Dave or David all all, all three times. I can't remember how that is. made like 10 actually.
2: Mm-hmm. I remember being really very excited when I first learned that Wallace and Delillo had correspondence together because my path to Wallace was through Delillo. So I read White Noise mm-hmm. in a third year American Lit class and that book, just blew my mind, and I couldn't believe that fiction like that existed, and I hadn't come across it yet. And so, as a result of reading White Noise, uh, I started on this trajectory finding other mm-hmm. sort of similar work, and that's how I came to Wallace. So when I learned of that connection, I was I was so excited that these two guys actually wrote each other and right. and and were in, yeah. in dialogue.
1: I felt the same the- way because they sort of they seem so different. Yeah, uh, but you know, one thing I was one thing that I was thinking about is you know one of the things that you always say, well, what could I have done better? in the book you published and all the rest of it. But one thing that I've grown more and more attuned to as I talk about uh, Wallace and I read, you know, maybe a little portion of biography with letters in it, uh, is that, you know, he, he's easy to quote out of context on other writers when he's, say, writing to DeLillo because he's always trying to impress DeLillo. <laughs> so he puts down, you know, a number of his friends and correspondence I didn't quote. But it's not that meaningful because... You know, David was a very socially aware animal uh mm-hmm. and I do think he writes differently about different writers to different people, aware of the impression you know he wasn't always you know d f w he was a even in the era of um i'd say after infinite infinite chess comes out everything changes, but even when infinite chess is sort of being prepared for publication, mm-hmm. he's still a different guy, and he um uh, I just feel really strongly that. Even his opinions of movies, which are really easy to quote um, from the letters, you know, even those are really contextual on who he's writing to. You notice that, Matt? How?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, what you say there about him saying one thing to DeLillo and saying another thing to someone else is very common. And I, uh, I, you know, it's hard for me to countenance that because a lot of the people who quote one thing, you know, they don't quote the other side. Well, of it.
1: exactly. That's some sort of saying when, you know, when, when I hope we do get a book of his letters, you know, it, it will be, I, I hope people don't take it too much at face value and say, you know, from then on, scholars will say, well, you know, Wallace thought X or Y of Gaddis or he thought X or Y of Gas, you know, mm-hmm. um, when actually, you know, if we had more letters or we were there having table talk with David, you know, I would get a different response than Delilah would get than Mark, Mark Costello would get than, you know, Chenu Achebe would get, you know what I mean? It's just like, right. it's really, he was a, you know, he was a guy whose personality was still being made up at that point in his life. I think later in life, he gets more stable, but then again, there's not that much writing later in life. I mean, his, his letter writing is not except to, to Franzen, you know, he, I think his pool of correspondence that he really is meaningfully in touch with shrinks. He writes a lot of letters to fans, you know what I mean? right i mean that becomes almost this sort of you know i can't remember if i quote this or not but like there's there's someone who wants him to come and get a degree and he says oh shucks i'd love to and my mother wouldn't you know can't believe that i'd be honored in this way but he he just doesn't want to go anyway you know (laughs) a little bit of a a little bit of a shtick you know like uh, right yeah holding off the i mean he had to you know he was he couldn't give everything of himself to every to every Mm -hmm. um letter writer he got a lot of letters I don't I don't know if you tried to answer them all or not. Do you know did do you
0: know Matt? I, I think he did. I think if you wrote to him, he wrote you back. Even, no even question. Even
1: just a postcard.
0: I mean yeah, even just a postcard and all the way up to the very end. I've never met anyone who said they wrote to him and never got a response. I mean, well, maybe that maybe that happened in 2008, but yeah, I mean, fair. I could name you a, a dozen people. I could name you dozens of people who wrote a postcard or a fan letter and got a significant reply which they are holding on to and cherishing like a piece of the true cross you know (laughs) right that's
1: that's incredible i mean there are some letters i remember now where he would just take the letter and annotate it and send it back
0: yeah he did that a lot too you know saving the
1: stationary and all the all the rest of it but that's (laughs) yeah he he
0: did that many times you know as far as things you would have done differently in the book i think i told you this but i i was really hoping there would have been photos in the book
1: Yeah, yeah yeah but you know photos are like you know, there are a couple of reasons there weren't photos, but I mean, photos are uh, it's the it's the writer's job to clear permissions and organize them. And I didn't really have the time. I wanted to spend the time on what I do best. And so I never really got to it. And then, you know, the editor, uh, Paul Slovak, who's a completely brilliant editor edits William Volman. He didn't push me on it. He didn't feel it was crucial. He didn't feel the readers for the book needed that i mean it's true most biographies do have that mm-hmm. you know chunky yeah high Middle gloss section. paper yeah. i get you know <laughs> and i i kind of think it it it, it you know, i also make a couple of arguments one i'm not sure in the year of the internet you really need that anymore
2: yeah in the age of google image
1: as he says you know google it knock yourself out doesn't he say that in the Federer mm-hmm. piece you know like go ahead google yeah. it knock yourself out um, yeah, yeah uh and then two you remember and i've said this enough times to Matt that he's sick of it. But, you know, I was trying to write a biography that sort of approximated the condition of a memoir in the sense that it was a memoir by the person who didn't live the life. It was supposed to have that kind of intimacy of tone and not feel the obligation to tick off every year and every acquaintance and every reading he gave, but to be a story, right? And so, you know, pictures, I mean, there are some memoirs with pictures in them, but there are many more memoirs where the person just puts a picture on the cover of themselves. And so... In that sense, you know, Wallace on the cover was, I felt, sort of sufficient. I mean, I wouldn't have minded. There's some wonderful pictures. You ever see the one of him and Cynthia Ozick and Salman Rushdie? Have you ever seen that one? I don't,
0: I don't think, think so. One. You should have put it in a book. Dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, that I, w- I was thinking of that because I, last year, read Adam Bagley's biography of Updike. Yeah, with the pictures. And, yeah, there were some pictures in there of Updike I had never seen, even on Google. I agree. And, um... You know, it's just something like as you're reading and you flip back and you say, wow, he was really young. And you look at him in this time of his life. And Wallace, it's a little different. Like Updike lived to be 77 and had multiple wives and children and, uh, you know, was not media shy at Mm -hmm. all. So Wallace is a different case in that. there is some of that stuff ended up in the Ransom Center. You know, his mom saved that photograph of him in the newspaper when he was in like sixth grade. Uh, yeah, the,
1: You mean him raising his hand at the spelling? Bee? Yeah. that's even. Yeah. I think that's younger than sixth grade. It's like fourth
0: grade or something. It's very young.
1: Yeah, that's around the time he, he wins the prize for the poem about the toxic sludge. Uh, <laughs> but, but oh, yeah. um, you know, I guess what I would say to that is if I did it, I'd want to do it really well. And it's not—it's yeah. not a tiny undertaking. It's certainly a possibility for a, for a later, edition of the book. But I'd want to do it well. I'd want to get—I want you to see pictures you'd never seen of him because there's sort of ten pictures we see over and over, you know. Right. Uh, right. I mean, I'll have to look for that Cynthia Ozick picture. That's new to me. Uh, yeah, it's—I yeah. uh, don't I believe it was at a reading. Anyway, I could—I could find it out for you. But you know, he had a big appreciation of Cynthia Ozick. He says, in one of those letters, you know, I'm. Second to no gentile in my appreciation or I'm paraphrasing, yeah. you know. that is those are the words, you know. And second to something like second to no gentile in my admiration for Miss for, for Miss Ozak. I'm sure he said Miss Ozick, you know. Uh so and then uh Rushdie it was some reading, you know. You know, one of the things that I didn't cover in the book and, and don't regret, but 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 as a writer who does a lot of this now myself, I see how it doesn't have a big place in, in one's life you know, he gave a lot of readings. I mean, you know, he would, University of, you know, Idaho would pay him to come and give a reading, you know, during long periods of life, he would do it. Uh, I'm sure he said no to far more, but my point is like, he was away a lot in that way. But those, mm-hmm. those, those outings are often very similar one to the other. They, they, they're like all, like all business travel. There's a certain inauthenticity to the experience. So I kind of left them out, but I mean, there are actually a lot of them, you know, You run into people. You run into people with those letters. I run into people like, oh, yeah, he read here, you know?
0: Yeah, I've got the pictures of him um, at New Mexico State with um, Evan Lavender Smith. Yeah. And he came to read there in New Mexico State, I think because some connection to Robert Boswell.
1: Boswell. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
0: Boswell taught there.
1: Yeah. And that's not where the picture with Ozick is from?
0: I don't think so. I haven't seen that.
1: Maybe it's not Ozak. Maybe Maybe I've been treasuring this keepsake that's uh, (laughs) not Ozak. Well, I I would love to see it. I mean, I I suspect it came from you, but I'm happy to send
0: it to you. I mean, uh, my brain maybe
2: is getting too old here. Annotate it and send it back to Matt.
1: (laughs)
0: So final thoughts, I do, Dan, I do want to give a plug to your piece that's out in the New Yorker today about a doctor in Poland. Can you give us a brief summary of that piece that just published today, yeah. January 18th? Yeah, yeah sure. I
1: mean, gonna, I mean, it's going to be really non-connected sort of non, non to every love story is a ghost story, but it's it's a piece in the New Yorker this week where I'm a staff writer about uh, a British um, researcher and a Polish surgeon who have combined on an innovative uh an innovative approach to spinal cord injury, which is a, you know, an enormous problem because there's never been a successful operation mm-hmm. for spinal cord injury. So, mm-hmm. But it's, in a way, maybe more closer to that first book of mine, The Family That Couldn't Sleep Then Too. Right, yeah. Um, every love story. But uh, anyway, yeah, that one's out.
2: And you traveled to Poland for that. Uh,
1: what, what, what was the backstory for the the person who had the operated on Well, I was just going to say, that just to relate it back to Wallace, you know, there's an enthusiastic community of... Um, of uh polish david foster wallace readers and there is a website in polish a wikipedia yeah. site which i don't think is just the translation of the english language site although i would defer to matt on that point um but i believe that there is finally an edition in polish of one of one of his books coming out so it'll be the oh, first that's true
0: um so there's a guy is, is there named Peter. that's coming out I don't know which book it is, but there's a guy named Peter Marecki who is very involved. He's a publisher in Poland, and he came to that first David Foster Wallace conference and then drove down to the Ransom Center, and I got to hang out with him in Austin. And he uh, backs up what you're saying, that in Poland they yeah. have – he's made his way into the Polish like literary world. Yeah, and, and there's a lot – I think there's several translations forthcoming.
1: Well, I know. In brief Interviews is the one that was mentioned to me um so if you're polish and listening to this uh uh podcast then um help is on the way
0: keep an eye out
1: keep yeah. an eye out yeah <laughs> i wonder how long you know my impression of polish is that the words are longer but in that case how long will infinite just be yeah i guess it has more to That's do with the structure of the grammar yeah and then, yeah
0: it's like 1400 pages right. in german so in germans german's a lot oh, longer, okay
1: you know right. All right a
2: lot longer yeah I met a guy in Paris last year at the conference uh, named Nick from Poland, um, and he, Nick Dendersky, and he was interested in translating
1: Wallace's work into Polish, so I wonder if he was involved in that. He might well have been. I think it's the first uh, yeah. new European country, old Iron Curtain country, I think, to publish. Well, oh, yeah. I could be wrong about that. I again, would ask Matt. <laughs> Matt is it the first um, I, I know. But there's no Hungarian edition.
0: Well, I, I don't know about Hungarian, but there's a Turkish edition of This is Water.
2: Ah. Yeah. And then there's three in Hebrew I mentioned last on last episode as well. Oh, wow.
0: It was, it was good talking with you guys. Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up here.
2: So Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Dan. We really appreciate it. Great to talk to both of you. Awesome. We had mentioned last episode that we are looking to do a QA and a episode in February. We've had a couple questions come in through email and Twitter since then, and we'd encourage you to keep sending them so that we can field those on an episode and uh and get some thoughts from our listening community and see what you guys are thinking wondering about with respect to wallace and with this show Uh, another reminder that infinite winter is coming up starting on january 31st you can visit infinitewinter.org for biographies about the guides one of which will be me Um, so check out infinitewinter.org as usual we thank robin o'neill for her podcast icon art as well as the band Parquet Courts for their song "Instant Disassembly." If you want to get in touch with us, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Concavity Show, and our email is concavityshow@gmail.com. <laughs>